Good morning. Marty Cates, the associate pastor here. It's uh, good to be with you this morning and uh, to be opening God's Word with you. Uh, we'll be in, in John's second letter. And so if you're not familiar with uh, your Bible, if you turn to the back of the Bible and start working your way towards the front, you'll quickly uh, find it. But just a couple things before uh, we get going uh, that have nothing to do with my sermon. Um, one, I was just, we were singing Blessed Assurance, which is like a song I grew up with, and I uh, closed my eyes at one point, and I was like sitting right next to where Brian Kamen was, and I opened my eyes, and he wasn't there, and I was like, this, this guy's like a wizard or something. He was just gone, and I hadn't realized he had moved up to come up to pray, and it's like, it scared me for a moment. Um, second is that uh, today is my middle child's fourth birthday, so if you see Mary Margaret uh, today, wish her a happy birthday. It's one of those things as a pastor I get to, get to do is celebrate my kids with you. And she's a testimony of, of God's goodness and grace to Meredith and I, but also kind of a, a mile marker for my time here because it was my first day in the office, July 31st of 2016, uh, when Meredith came up to tell me that, that she was pregnant uh, after almost three years of infertility treatments. And so it was just a blessing. I started a new job, we moved to a new place, and then we we're going to have a second kid. Yes, I had an anxiety attack. But God is good. Would you pray with me as we ask him for his help this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning. We ask for your Holy Spirit. We ask for your Spirit to be at work in us as we proclaim uh, the word to one another, as we read it, as I preach it. Would you use it this morning uh, to edify your saints, to strengthen us, to grow us, uh, to convict us, and bring us before the cross that we might see even greater the beauty of Jesus and that we might long to follow after him and to pursue the things of your kingdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now we're in uh, John's second letter, and so if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as we read this morning together? The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, and this is his commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face 
so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. You may be seated. I was preparing over the last few weeks and reading and studying. I realized something. Second John is not a book of the Bible that gets preached very often. And as I was studying it, I realized why. There's a lot of things that John says here that are hard, uh, that are not easy uh, for us to, to hear, um, but for us to apply and to live out as well. John's writing this letter, his first letter right before this one is written to uh, the church broadly. It circulates among uh, lots of churches. Has some similar themes to this one, but this one's shorter. It's only 13 verses, shortest book in the Bible. And it's not written to all the churches. It's written to one church in particular, this elect lady and her children. And it's written to them into a particular context. John spends the first part of his letter commending them, but then warning them. He's trying to help this church make sure it has the right priorities, that it might persevere, that it might continue on. So this morning we're going to look at those priorities, these priorities of defending the truth and walking in the truth. Defending the truth and walking in the truth. As I was studying, I was reminded of a story that happened back in 2016. It was in the Aspen Times. If you don't read the Aspen Times, don't worry. I'm going to tell you the story. There was a mother and a son, five-year-old son, doing what a mother and a five-year-old son do. He was um, around the corner playing, and she was doing something else, and he's old enough to be by himself for a little while, and she heard a scream. Now, if you, if you have kids, or you've got grandkids, or you've been around kids, you know that there are numerous screams that kids have. Some of them are worth paying attention to, but there's also the scream where they're like kind of whiny, they didn't get their way, and you ignore it, or you chastise it. There's the one where they fell and they skinned your, their, their knee, but it's not really bad, so you ignore it. I know, I just told you you ignore your kids getting hurt, but you, you understand, like, they're not hurt bad enough. They need to rub some dirt on it and move on with life. But there's that scream that, that sends every adult head in a room that just snap turns to, what, to see what happened. It's a blood-curdling scream. It's a scream where you know something is wrong. And this mother hears that kind of scream from her five-year-old son, and she comes running, and as she rounds the corner... This is the scene she takes in. Her five-year-old son is on the ground. And standing over her five-year-old son is a mountain lion. And her five-year-old son's head is in his mouth. Now she has to make some quick decisions. And she's got to have the right priorities. She can take a picture and, and, and post it to the gram and go viral. It would go viral. She's going to run and call 911 and preserve herself her health, her safety? Or is she going to act? Is she going to defend her child? She does what any mother would do. She, she just mama bears it big time. And she takes off after this mountain lion. And she gets there. And she reaches her hands into the mountain lion's mouth and pries its jaws apart. Removes her son's head and takes off running. Now, of course, you, you think, well, the mountain lion chased them, right? No. It stood there dumbfounded, awestruck. It's like the bully in the lunchroom when you just walk up and take their tater tots off their tray. They're just like, I can't believe you did that. By the time the mountain lion could react, they had retreated to safety. And he had some injuries. He had some, some cuts and some lacerations, and, but nothing that was life-altering. Or, you know, her, her priorities were set right. 
She acted to defend her son. And, and what we see here is John's instructions on what it looks like for us to defend the truth, for us to face the mountain lions that are before us, because there are mountain lions out there. I guarantee you that, that after this event, this mom and, and this son were probably more aware and more vigilant than ever every time they were outside. Every shadow, every leaf that fell, every twig that broke in the woods was another mountain lion. They became hyper aware of the danger that was there. John's telling us this morning that there is danger. There is false teaching. And we have to be aware of it. To defend the truth, we have to be aware that there is danger that we need to defend it from. We see it in verses 7 and 8. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. Be aware. Be vigilant of these who have gone out. Now, where have they gone out from? They've gone out from the church. They're teachers of the church. They've gone out and they're proclaiming false things about Jesus. I mean, that's the specific issue at hand is that they're proclaiming that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man. He was just God and a man rapper. And the Bible clearly teaches, no, he's fully God and fully man. And John's saying, you, you've got to be aware. And it's not just this false teaching. It's, it's any false teaching, any deceivers, any teacher or book or preacher or podcast that you put before you, you have to be aware that there might be mountain lions. There might be trouble and danger in front of you. And here's the thing, though, is that, that like that mom and son for probably the first month or year even after that event, everything was a mountain lion in the woods. But not everything is actually a mountain lion. And not everything that we come across is a mountain lion. We get confused. And I think right now in this cultural moment, in our country and in Western Christianity, we see everything as a mountain lion. Sometimes it's just a house cat. You know, differences in, in, in theological opinions, differences on, on baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, we've always known our house cats. You might like cats. I don't like cats. I might come and visit you occasionally. We can be friends and even be brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm not going to spend much time with you because I'm allergic to cats. But we, we, we have other things today that because of just the moment we live in that we, we get up in arms over. And I see it on my Facebook feed and my Twitter feed and Christians yelling at Christians and fighting over things. Racial injustice and social justice and Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and all these other things that are out there. We automatically write off other believers that want to engage culturally, culture differently than we do as mountain lions. And there are mountain lions in those weeds. Don't get me wrong. You've got to be careful. You've got to be aware those things begin to become mountain lions when they see the fixing of those injustices, of those evils as salvation. That's not true. Salvation comes from Jesus alone, not from the fixing of racial injustice, not from the fixing of inequalities. But when we find that salvation, when that find, salvation finds us, it sends us out to fight against injustice. It sends us out to proclaim the truth to a culture that doesn't know it. You see, when, when we begin to confuse salvation with the fixing of those problems, we turn a house cat into a mountain lion. When we, we begin to see the, the ending of those things as the means, as the end that we're all working for, we forget that evil will continue to manifest itself. 
Sin will continue to be prevalent, will continue to live under the curse until Jesus returns. Christians saying that we need to be more involved in social and political theater, more involved in fighting against injustice, aren't mountain lions. They're house cats. Until they begin to see salvation as something other than belonging to our Lord. At that point, they become a mountain lion. They become someone that we should correct, that we shouldn't let rent space in our heads. If you're here this morning, you're not a, not a believer, you think, y'all aren't doing a very good job of that. It just seems like you're yelling at each other a whole lot. It's true. We are. Awareness, though, leads to discernment. Awareness leads to us checking out the, the, the teachers that we have before us, the preachers we have before us, the books that we're, that we're reading, the podcasts we're listening to. Do they square up with Scripture? Like the Bereans did with Paul in Acts 17. Does what this person's saying measure up to God's Word? to the truth that we've been given, that's been revealed, or not. And we're part of a denomination that, that does a really good job of protecting churches through its ordination process. If you're not familiar with the Presbyterian Church in America and how we go about ordaining someone, it is a process. I could spend 20 minutes telling you all the things you got to do. You got to go to seminary and get a master's degree that's equivalent to a master's of divinity. And you'd think that'd be enough that when you graduate from a reputable seminary, they'd be like, okay, you can be ordained. Nope. You got to do an internship after that. And you all go, you did your internship. Now you can be ordained. No, then you got to get some written tests done. And then you got to go before a committee of other pastors and ruling elders from other churches, and they've got to examine you and determine whether or not you know your stuff. And when you got those done, they ask you for some papers to make sure you know the Hebrew and the Greek that you say you know. And then when all that's done, you get to go before the presbytery. And anybody that's part of the presbytery, any ruling elder, any teaching elder gets to come up there and ask you a question. I mean, it is absurd. I lost sleep in probably years of my life through that process. But it's because we take defending the truth seriously. That, that we want to make sure that the, the people that are leading our churches, that are teaching and opening God's word, are worthy to do so because they're proclaiming the truth as it's revealed. Secondly, in defending the truth, we need to persevere. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the truth or imbibe the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Abides is a fancy word for remains. So anyone who goes on ahead and doesn't remain rooted in God's word doesn't have God. But those who remain have the Father and the Son. We need perseverance, not progressivism. I know some of you all are about to hoot and holler. You're right, we don't need those progressives. And there's some progressivism that, that, that shares in common with what's, what John's talking about here in social and political progressivism, but it's on both sides of the aisle, left and right. And what he's saying, though, is we can't go beyond what God's teaching does. And, and you, you begin to hear this with folks who might say something like, oh, the Bible's old-fashioned. Culture's changed. The world's changed. You really think God wants us to live like that? You really think God meant that for today? You don't think that it's time to get with the times? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's time to persevere in God's Word. We see this today in, in whole in, in preachers and, and authors and in, in churches and whole denominations. 
that have moved beyond God's teaching on sexuality, on gender, on, on, on marriage. Why? To, to, to be kind and loving. But, but it's not kind or loving to let folks live a lie. It's, it's one thing when the church is doing it. I can understand when the world is doing it. They don't know the truth. But when the, the, the church is who's supposed to be the defender of the truth, folks, we've got a world of problems. We've bought into the lie that, that hope and, and wholeness and joy and life are found in embracing these things. But it's not true. You don't find hope and wholeness in life by embracing these things, by welcoming them. If, if it were true, then suicide rates wouldn't be what they are in the LGBTQ communities. That, that suicide rates and, and among those suffering with gender dysphoria wouldn't be at times 10 times higher than the general population. A study that was done uh, by a group in Amsterdam that looked at that rate, not just in the last year or two years, but since the 70s, has seen no change in that. That the suicide rate among those that are transitioning genders hasn't changed. It still remains scarily higher than the general population. No matter what point they're at. You would think that the way culture talks about it, then when the transition's over, that, that they, there'd be wholeness and hope and life and joy, and yet the suicide rate remains high. Why? Because hope and joy and life and wholeness aren't found there. They're found in Jesus. We've traded the timeless truths of God's Word for the hopeless truths of culture. In the end of every sin, Every worldview that's not biblical, every idol that our heart produces is not the hope and joy that we are longing for. It is hopelessness and despair that comes with finding out it was a lie. And so to defend the truth, we need to persevere in God's Word. It's all over the New Testament. These words to hold fast to the truth. Romans 12, 9, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 Test everything and hold fast to what is good. Hebrews Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10 Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. Defending the truth means perseverance, not progressivism. Thirdly, it means to be purposefully inhospitable. I know that's odd to say. As Christians, we, we often talk about how we need to be hospitable. We need to welcome anyone. We need, we need to open our arms, open our homes, and love folks. But John's saying that, that when those false teachers come around, to be purposefully inhospitable. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. If anyone comes to you and does not bring to you this teaching, he's talking about the, the true and orthodox teaching, 
of who Jesus was, fully God and fully man. But for you and I, anyone's coming to us as a teacher of God's Word and what they're teaching doesn't line up with Scripture, we don't give them time. We don't let them rent space in our heads. We don't give them the pulpit. We don't greet them. Now, his greeting isn't our greeting. Like, he, he's not talking about the greeting that, you know, that we give one another. Hey, how you doing? Or if you're another guy, you know, you give the... Just had a whole conversation right there with Mike Brakel. He's not talking about that kind of greeting. He's talking about the greetings that we see in the New Testament and the letters that, that Paul and, and Peter and John are writing to the church. Things that say grace and, and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Things that, that give an inclination that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Greetings that, that proclaim to one another that you're both sharing in the fellowship and union with Jesus. John's saying, don't give them that greeting. Why? Because you don't give them any inclination that they know Jesus. Because they don't have God. They don't know Jesus. And so by giving them some idea that they do, you're participating in their wicked works. Don't give them that greeting. So when those guys in their white shirts and their black pants and bike helmets and little name tags come around and ask to come in and talk to you about Jesus Christ, you don't. You send them on their way. They might be thinking, well, Marty, I, I like to have them in. I want to evangelize them. I, I, I want to tell them where they're wrong. And I'd say, if, if you know the, the, the places and the follies of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, and then you're confident that you can proclaim to them the truth that God has laid out in his word, sure. But if you're not confident, it's not worth the risk. Now, this purposeful inhospitableness isn't for everyone. It's for teachers. It's for those who, who would be coming around to teach and to preach. The books we might pick up. It's not for your neighbor who might believe differently than you. It's for people who are claiming to be Christians, proclaiming that, that they're going to teach you God's Word, and they aren't. Mary Thomas was a single mother. Nine children, Seven boys, two girls, lived in the west side of Chicago. In 1966, she opened her door to 25 gang members standing there, and they had come for her seven sons. They had come for her seven sons. They were, it was time for the boys to become a part of the neighborhood gang. And she kind of dropped her gaze and said, oh, oh, oh okay. She closed the door and made it like she was going to go get her sons and when she opened that door, what the 25 gang members saw was the end of her shotgun barrel pointed at them. And they scattered. And Mary Thomas yelled to them, there is only one gang in the Thomas house, and it's the Thomas gang. And then she went back to loving her children. They all graduated from high school. They all moved on in life. Her youngest son ended up at uh, Indiana. After his sophomore year, he decided he was done with college. And he was drafted second overall by the Detroit Pistons, Isaiah, NBA Hall of Famer, whose mother loved him enough to defend him against those who might do him harm, against those who were not for his good and his flourishing. You see, our defending of the truth flows from our love. It flows from walking in the truth. 
That's the other priority. That's the priority that this church seems to get already. It begins at the very beginning of this letter. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and be with us forever. John opens this letter. He's showing us what it means to walk in truth. And the first thing that it means to walk in truth is to love one another. Why was this church particularly lovable? Did they share a lot in common with John and he had a lot, you know, a lot of friends there? No, he, he, he says he loves them. Why? Because the truth that abides in them. This is the spirit of truth that Jesus refers to in John 14, John 15, John 16. It's the Holy Spirit. He's loving his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because of what they both have. The Holy Spirit that is in them and will remain with them forever. And it's not just him. It's all who know. All who know the truth. Because of that truth that abides in them. And so walking in truth means loving our brothers and sisters. It also means knowing the truth. He goes, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Peace that we have, mercy that we needed because of the grace that we were given in Jesus. Simple, quick gospel proclamation to them. Been reconciled to God, been shown the mercy of God. How? Through Jesus. Knowing the truth, walking in the truth, loving our brothers and sisters, knowing the truth. And then, and then the last thing is that we follow them by, we love each other by following God's commandments. All right, he, he, he moves on from that and says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. He's saying, I've been around some of your church folk and y'all good folk. I've been around some of your church folk and I've been watching them love one another and care for one another and put others before themselves. I've watched them live out the gospel and I rejoice because of it. I rejoice because you're a church that knows Jesus. You're a church that's walking in love. And then he says, and now I ask you, now I ask you, church, not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He's quoting from Jesus, John 13. When Jesus says to the disciples, I give you now a new commandment that you love one another, that actually wasn't new. That part wasn't new. Loving other believers wasn't a new thing. It's what follows. As I have loved you. Loving one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? Well, I mean, immediately your mind goes to the cross, right? That he would lay down his life for us at the cross. That's only part of it, though. Because he also lived a perfect, sinless holy life and that was loving because it's what made dying on the cross matter he was the spotless lamb and so jesus gives us a picture of what it means to love as he loved when he lived a holy and sinless life so to love one another means to pursue righteousness to, to, to walk as jesus walked to live and follow after god's will and commandments as outlined for us and the Ten Commandments. So Jesus' love was lived out in obedience to God's law for us. So to take up our cross and follow Him means to do that same thing. 
The Ten Commandments are, are simply summarized to love God and to love others. That's what John's saying in this commandment. Right? He says that it's not a new commandment. It's the one that we have to love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandment. And this is the commandment. Just as you've heard from the beginning, so walk in it. It's to love one another. It's to treat others as Jesus treated folks. And how did Jesus treat people? Yeah, he flipped some tables. He was biting in his words at times. But all those times were against the teachers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and, and the leaders of that day. Now, when he came across a sinner or a prostitute or a tax collector, someone suffering, it, it, it wasn't that harshness, but a meekness, a compassion, a gentle and lowly heart for those like that. It was never throwing the book at them. It was never the yelling and screaming. His heart towards people was full of compassion. Is ours. As we walk in the truth, is our heart one that is full of love and compassion towards the sinner and the prostitute and the tax collector? Or is it one of self-righteousness that wants to beat people over the head with God's truth? Are we too busy on Twitter rampages and Facebook arguments, frustrated and angry at what's happening around us to our country to engage with truth and love? Are we too busy fighting house cats and missing the mountain lions? If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're probably going, yeah, yeah, it is. Haven't seen a whole lot of love from people that say they're Christians in my life. See, defending the truth doesn't mean that we have to be unloving. In, in fact, defending the truth flows from the fact that we are loving and that the truth abides in us. You know, that mother, as she rounded that corner, came to the, the conclusion that she wanted to defend her son. But before she got there, she had to make a decision. And it's one that she had lived his five years of life. There's one that said, I love my son. And therefore, I'll risk my life for my son. I'll lay down my life for his. And John's rejoicing over this church's actions. Because what he sees is the gospel being lived out. And when we love one another, when we love one another to proclaim, uh, not to proclaim the truth to one another, and to, and to live out the truth and to walk in the truth with one another, we provide the world around us with pictures of the gospel. With pictures of the gospel. I saw it. We, we had a family in, in Florida uh, that adopted a son. And he was, um, he was a hellion. And that's to put it lightly. He, he had gotten kicked out of his own home at a young age and was living by himself. And I mean by himself. He had a 13-year-old kid that was showing up to school filthy, you know, social services, just trying to get involved, and he would just move on. And not the church I was at, but another church, the son of a pastor, began to just talk to him, befriend him, love him. And this guy, by this point, had a reputation around town. And by this son's 
care and compassion, the Holy Spirit brought that young man home. And he changed almost night and day. And this pastor's son went home to his parents and said, hey, you know that guy that everybody doesn't like at my school that's kind of like always getting picked up by the police and is always in trouble? And Oh, he came to know Jesus. He's been saved. I think he should move in with us. And this pastor and his wife said, we'll let him live here a few, few days while we get things sorted out. And what they saw when he showed up was exactly what happens when the gospel gets a hold of someone. It changed him. It completely changed him. And they didn't just let him keep living there. They adopted him. They placed his name on him. Folks, that's our story. That's our story. Our Heavenly Father's Son came here to a bunch of hellions and proclaimed the truth of God's love to us. And he went home to his daddy and said, let him live with us. Let him come into our house. And his daddy said, I'll do one better. I'm going to make him your brothers. I'm going to make him your sisters. That's the truth we're called to walk in. And it's out of that truth that we will defend, that we will defend the truth. That we'll be aware of those who tell us it's not true. That we'll be aware of those who try to shake us from that truth. And that we'll persevere not because of our own strength, but because of He who remains in us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for the truth of the Gospel. The truth that proclaims to us the grace that we need and that we've been shown that we might be reconciled to You and experience Your mercy and your love. May throughout this week you remind us each and every day of the truth that we walk in, of the truth that abides in us, that we might defend that truth against false teachers, against our own hearts, and against the evil one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.